0: lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May we pray. O oh Lord, we do pray again that you would grant to us faith and even wisdom as we consider your words of wisdom. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to see the gospel that you have given to us for life here in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Well, it really should not require a trip to the edge of the Amazon jungle in order to see poverty. It's everywhere. It is ubiquitous, to use my friend's favorite SAT word. Poverty is everywhere. It's it's within a mile of where we're seated right now. It's, It's everywhere, even though perhaps not in its extreme forms, so common here in our midst, it is everywhere. And likewise, nor does it require a trip through Dallas, Texas in order to see riches. There's much of it here, but it's quite common as well worldwide, more concentrated in some places than in others. But Riches are quite common as well. Statisticians, sociologists, those uh, uh, numbers-minded people who keep track of such things tell us, of course, that though poverty in its extreme forms is being dealt with in many effective and good ways today, the number of poor continues to increase. There are numerous Poor throughout the world, and at the same time, oddly enough, the number of rich are increasing around the world as well. Uh, they both are everywhere and so common and so easy to find. According to the United Nations, 17,000 children will die of hunger today. 17,000 more will die of hunger tomorrow and the next day, and the next, and so it goes. That's just how the statistics work themselves out. To be a bit mechanic about it, I suppose, that's what the world looks like today. The World Bank defines extreme poverty like this. It says that extreme poverty is an individual who lives on less than $2 a day. And in 2007, its estimate of the number of people who were living in such conditions was 1.8 billion, 1.8 billion people around the world living on less than $2 a day in extreme poverty. Now, I, I really can't even fathom that. I mean, it costs me more than $2 to get out of bed, take a shower, eat breakfast, and get to the office. By that time, I've already broken the budget. I just can't even fathom $2 a day. At the same time, on the other side, Merrill Lynch commissions a study each year for this purpose, to count the other side of the story. And they tell us that there are now over 10 million individuals worldwide whose net worth is over 1 million U.S. dollars. Over 10 million people in the world, most of them in the United States or Japan, but many, many, many millions of others scattered throughout the rest of the world, over 10 million people throughout the world whose net worth is over 1 million U.S. dollars. Now, I'm not offering those statistics to make any kind of political statement. I have no agenda in that regard at all. You can debate the numbers and you can debate the sources and question all those things all day long, I'm sure, but it's indisputable that poverty is everywhere and, at the same time, that you you rub elbows with a millionaire every week that you live in Dallas, Texas. You may not know it, but you do because it's quite common. It's quite common. Then the writer of Proverbs knew this, knew of this circumstance, even in his day or their day, The multiple writers of Proverbs. In their day and age, this problem was apparent as well and, and all the problems that come along with it. And so, They included over 60 Proverbs over the course of this book, this letter, regarding money or the lack thereof. And certainly we know as well that money was a primary detail in view often whenever Jesus spoke to his disciples and to those who heard him in his New Testament era ministry. The four Gospels that we have in the Bible are, of course, replete with words on wealth and poverty. There's just no doubt at all that money and the way that we manage it or mismanage manage it is an urgent matter before the Lord. And we all know now, of course, that money is not going to save the world. And a lack of money is not going to destroy the world either, but it is a powerful gauge in the eyes of a father writing to his son this letter of Proverbs and exhorting him to choose the path of wisdom, because for both the rich and the poor alike, money reveals the heart and the fear of the Lord that may or may not be there. This prayer that we've read here this morning in chapter 30 is attributed to a man called Agur, son of Jacke, is what Proverbs 30 tells us. And it's an interesting prayer for its humility and you have to admit if if you read through the prayer it's it's actually kind of quite humorous too at least in our context it begins this way in verse 1 the man declares and he's talking about himself the man declares i am weary o god i am weary o god and worn out surely i am too stupid to be a man i have not the understanding of a man i have not learned wisdom nor have i knowledge of the holy one now listen you men if, if you have not prayed this prayer or some form or fashion of it for yourself at some point in your life, I can assure you that some woman has, <laughs> right? If not your wife or your mother, then probably your sister has prayed this for you. Probably most of your sisters have prayed this for you. And it's just so common. It's just kind of funny to read this man's prayer here. There's humility and humor involved with it as well, although I don't think that it was humorous to him. I think it was very serious and very humble. In fact, his humility continues on into his financial request, which we read a moment ago. He prays, give me neither poverty nor riches, he requests. His life aspiration is is so simple and so humble, he simply asks for two things. He says to the Lord, protect me from untruth and protect me from the dangers of both poverty and riches. Maybe he knew the frailty of his own soul so well that he knew that he couldn't handle either one of them and the dangers that come with them because there is danger in both poverty and riches. And from the larger scope of the book of Proverbs, as we saw a few weeks ago, I think it's safe to say that the implicit request is rather, teach me to fear the Lord. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but teach me to fear the Lord. To have awe and respect and reverence for the one who made me, which will give me life. After all, Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Whoever has it rests satisfied, presumably regardless of his or her financial condition. And so as we go along here, we're going to draw together a number of different Proverbs. You really kind of have to do that as you go through Proverbs. To see how they lead us to fear the Lord from within our financial status. And as you collect together some of these proverbs, one of the first things that you see is that wealth fears the Lord in its generosity. This is what he prays Feed me only what I need, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Now there it is, just as plain and simple as it possibly could be, the one greatest danger of riches. There are many, among all the pitfalls and potholes that wealth can bring with it for a person, above all the others, here's the one greatest danger that Agur, son of Jaka, recognizes wealth can bring lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? This is one of the great plagues of American culture, I would say. I have traveled a fair amount, more than many, but not as much as many others. But enough, I suppose. I've traveled through Europe. I've spent a few days in North Africa. I've been as far as Turkey twice. I've spent a few weeks in China I've been to Mexico, and I've now been on Ecuador mission trips two different summers, these past two summers. I've traveled just enough to see that, with the exception of the European countries, the material benefits that we enjoy here in this country far, far, far surpass those of any other country that you might go to. In Shell, Ecuador, where we went last week and where we went the year before, to visit the Bartons and to work with Casa de Fe Orphanage there. The the physical infrastructure of that small city is just astonishing, the state in which it is, for a populated city. Most of the streets are unpaved dirt, and they're covered with potholes and rocks and piles of construction debris. The sidewalks are treacherous, they have broken concrete and holes that are a foot or two deep that will easily sprain or break an ankle or a leg of an unwatching walker. The The infrastructure is just astonishing to us. And I don't know if it's because there's no capital. I assume there's no money to, to correct it and maybe no real motivation to do it, to clear it up and to fix it. And it's really troubling to us. It's troubling to Americans who go and live in the midst of that for a week. But it doesn't seem to trouble the Ecuadorians, the residents of Shell, and for an orphanage like Casa de Fe, in the midst of that, it provides an environment where miraculous provisions are the norm. There are many stories there at that orphanage about how God has provided the funding at just the right time and just the right amounts for the necessary work of the orphanage as they care for 58 children in that orphanage and eight babies and continually more that come feeding them and clothing them, even having to undergo uh, life-saving surgeries for these children. And how do they pay for these things? There There are constantly miraculous stories of how God has provided for them in their needs there. And Patty Sue Arnold, the woman who started in runs the orphanage there, as we did last year. She came and had dinner with us, and eventually she was holding court and kind of telling her story of how things developed and how she ended up there. She would have never chosen to be there doing what she's doing. And she would never have expected for the Lord to have worked and continue to work in the ways that He does in that ministry. And she tells all kinds of stories, how He cares for them and provides for them and We sit around the table marveling at her faith that she just assumes that God's going to take care of them tomorrow. And she sleeps well at night, unworried and unconcerned for the most part, because she knows that God is going to take care of them, even through miraculous provision. And we sit around the table in awe, marveling at the degree of her faith. And she sees it so clearly, and she says this. You know, Christians in the United States don't believe that God works miracles because they don't need miracles. And you know she's right, of course. We are full, and we have denied Him. Where is the Lord after all? I mean, we have our paved streets and our cars. We have our racks of clothes and fully stocked pantries. We have our health insurance and burglar alarms. And who needs a miracle? Who needs the Lord after all? Christian Smith is a sociologist at Notre Dame University, and he's written a book recently based on his research of giving. His book is called Passing the Plate, Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. You have to love the blunt directness of his title. Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. In the course of his research, he found that 20% of professing Christians in America give away zero. 20% of those who profess to believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior and King give away absolutely nothing at all, even though the Bible clearly commands that they do so. He found as well that only a very, very few Americans actually practice what he, the author, would call tithing. And what he would call tithing is not quite what I would call tithing, to be honest. But very few practice that. And very predictably, I suppose, he found that the more one has, what? The less they give away, right? I mean, it's just so predictable. It's just kind of the pattern that works itself out. And he suggests, as he kind of works the statistics and population numbers and average incomes of Americans and all these things, he kind of does some of the math. And he points out that if American Christians, at least those who profess to believe the gospel, if they would give, if they would tithe according to his definition of it, then they would generate $100 billion a year to be used in whatever way those Professing believers wanted it to be used. He says Christians could virtually change the world if they would just give with moderate generosity, but they don't. And so he's baffled. He says it's just baffling why American Christians, commanded by Scripture to give, don't. But it's not baffling to the Proverbs. It's not baffling to Agur, son of Jache. As primitive as his name may sound, he had great wisdom when he prayed, Feed me only what I need, lest I be full and deny you. The truth is that generally as a culture, we hear, Be full and we be deniers who needs God anyway? But God calls us to much more. In Proverbs, He calls us to far more than that. 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will will himself call out and not be answered. And whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. The warning element is very clear, but Proverbs is positively exhortational as well. Nineteen seventeen: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Don't you love that imagery that God gives to us? The one who... Is willing to water those in need, will himself then be watered as the Lord provides and cares for him. The imagery is so so beautiful there that that the Proverbs give to us. There are many more Proverbs along the same lines. Again, there are sixty or more regarding these matters, but the verdict is very clear. The gospel calls us to give generously to the needy out of reverence and awe and respect for, in other words, out of Fear of the Lord. Proverbs fourteen thirty one. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote, that through, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now for just a moment, Can I be just bluntly pragmatic with you? I think Proverbs warrants that for us, doesn't it? It seems to me that that God presents to us in Scripture the notion of tithing, that is, giving a tenth of what we have back to Him, as it were, as some say. God presents us that notion in Scripture merely as a suggestion for a good place to start. He gives it to us as a practical, pragmatic, if you will, step in the direction of generosity. Not as a fulfillment of generosity. It's not a law. Christians often wonder and even ask the question, you know, should I tithe on my gross or on my net? And I just have to tell you, the times that I've heard that question, it just makes me want to pull my hair out. And my answer to that would be this. Just tithe on your net, but give 25%. The point is that generosity is a spirit and not a law. And that's the point of tithing. And there are so many ways to give, countless ways to give, even beyond giving to the church. You know, an obvious one is Casa de Fe. Here we are coming back from this trip just a week ago, and The same as last year. You know, this orphanage operates on $16,000 a month. That's what it requires. I honestly don't know how she comes up with the money, but she does. Because God provides it in various ways and needs people who will do the same. They have 58 children there, many of them with special needs. Patty Sue has, okay, you mothers, listen carefully to this. She has in her little house that she rents a couple of blocks from the orphanage eight babies, many of whom are special needs themselves, and she hires women from the the town to come and help, and so during the day when Patty Sue's not there, there are two women caring for those eight babies, and at night when she's there, there's only one other with her, so she and one other woman are there caring for eight babies, okay, imagine that in your house, right? They have so many needs. There's so much that they have going on. They're even building this new facility to care for these kids in a clean and, and uh, uh, pleasant environment where they can provide all that they need. They've already built the multi-use building, but they need funds to build a small school building and family houses. You can go to their website that we provided for you at different times and will again, if you have an interest in perhaps considering how you might give there. Or more immediately, more locally, you might have seen... It's a completely different subject. Yesterday morning in the Dallas Morning News in the Metro section was an article about Joel Miller. You might have seen that. He's a pastor up in the McKinney-Allen area. Joel is on a hunger strike. The article described him as the pastor of the Summit, an interdenominational church up there in McKinney. It's actually Joel is a member of our presbytery. He's a church planter in the North Texas Presbytery. And the summit, his church, is, is a part of our presbytery. And Joel is on a hunger strike. He, he is actually probably this afternoon, maybe this morning he's at church, but this afternoon he will be once again sitting and even camping out on top of a tractor trailer along the side of Central Expressway and not eating, drinking lots of water and being very hot and waiting for people to volunteer to bring 60,000 items of food, clothing, or school supplies For the poor and the needy. He's on a hunger strike. It's kind of crazy. I'm not sure I would ever do such a thing. But he's there. He's just up Central Expressway. He'll be there this afternoon. And he's beckoning and asking, come and give to the poor. There's so many countless ways to give. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. And by His hand, He has given into your hands all that you have. So fear the Lord and give generously. The gospel challenge is not only for the wealthy, of course, though, because there's danger on both sides. And so the Proverbs tells us as well that poverty fears the Lord in its contentment. Feed me only what I need, He prays lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Some Christians are drawn to the, the ascetic spirituality that says that you ought to just be poor because Jesus was poor, and there's deeper spirituality in being poor. But the wisdom of Proverbs sees the danger in that too. Our sinful hearts will take anything and create trouble with it. And being poor is no less dangerous than being rich. Augur's concern is to that effect. He prays, don't leave me with nothing, lest I should be tempted to break the eighth commandment and so bring shame on God's name. Now, while Proverbs is consistent with the rest of Scripture regarding God's very visible and clear deep concern for the poor, it also is consistent with its evaluation of fallen men, no matter their financial state. So here's a proverb for you, 28.3. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Poverty alone creates no saints. In fact, at points, Proverbs seems to condemn the poor for their condition. 14.23. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Or the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings more folly. And even this, why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? In other words, if a man is a fool, if he disregards his maker then why should he have money in his hand at all? He has no sense to use it rightly. There is no kid-glove preferential treatment for any fallen man here in Proverbs. It's very honest and blunt and direct. Now, to be fair, though, we also have to say that the poor don't always cause their own predicaments. We might assume, as Proverbs tells us, that... A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And if you carry that one in to seeing a beggar on the street, your response is going to be, well, if he would just be diligent, like I am, then he wouldn't be poor. But it's just not that simple. It's much more complicated than that, and Proverbs allows for that as well. 13.23, The fallow ground of the poor would Yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Far more often than the middle class and the wealthy are willing and able to admit, the poor are simply stuck by injustice. They're tied down and stuck by the sins of those near to them. And even by the burdensome laws of governing authorities, it's so common, far more so than we're willing really ever to admit. And it's just this that plagues the kids at Casa de Fe. I mean, there are babies who are born with club feet or other crippling conditions in a jungle culture that has no place for them and no mercy for their condition. There are young boys who are severely injured in a primitive setting that has little or no respect for life. And there are young girls who are routinely abused by their own fathers and no one holds them accountable for it because there's just simply not the infrastructure to do it. The fallow ground of these children would yield much but for the injustice that sweeps it away. Poverty can be very, very complicated, but at the same time, poverty does not exempt one from respecting the Lord. I have to say that one thing that I've come back from this trip both years with is that while these kids are needy for many, many things, they are not needy for the material excesses that we take for granted and enjoy here, which are, in so many cases, good gifts from the Lord, but they are, we have to admit, excesses. And these kids have no need for those things. The Proverbs describe their condition very well. Fifteen sixteen, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and the trouble that it brings. Or, better is a little with righteousness Than great revenues with injustice. Or, better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. If right reverence for God is in place, then wealth is really just a tangential concern, it's really just a sideline, it's almost irrelevant. And it is right reverence for their maker that these kids gain at Casa de Fe and at many other places like them around the world. Through the love of God's servants caring for them and extending themselves in generosity for their needs, poverty fears the Lord in its contentment because, as Proverbs says, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox And hatred with it. In neither poverty nor riches is there freedom from spiritual danger. They both are equally dangerous. The two are quite different, but spiritually the two are quite equal. And so, all, both rich and poor, all alike fear the Lord in their equality. In the eyes of God, the rich and the poor are just the same. Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. For the Lord is the maker of them all. In the eyes of God, the Forbes 400 most wealthy and powerful people in the world are just the same as the 400 widows and orphans who will die of hunger and abuse before you and I get home from lunch today. And That alone should thunder down on us a humiliating perspective of awe, that the God of the universe knows your name, whatever you have or don't have. We're all the same. He makes us all. And even those in between the extremes are in peril, because those who are blessed with neither poverty nor riches, as Augur prayed for, are often either Longing for the one, or smug and proud in their nearness to the other, right? Money is dangerous, and the lack of money is equally dangerous. Apart from generosity for Christ's sake and contentment in Christ's work, there is no financial position that is safe for your soul. Now, we have to admit that almost all of us, Almost all of us here have been given riches, according to Augur's prayer. Almost all of us. And the reason that you don't feel that way is because generosity and contentment, generosity and contentment go hand in hand. They come with each other. There is no generosity for Christ's sake where there is little contentment in Christ's work. What's in your wallet is really just incidental. What's in your wallet is really just tangential to those things. For richer or for poorer, what you must do is fear the Lord, stand in awe of, revere, and respect the God who made you and who has loved you, and you will do what is right. Amen. O Lord, we do pray that you would grant to us the wisdom to see the truth of your word, that we might recognize that all that we have comes from your hand, and that you call us to generosity and contentment in serving you and in serving the immediate needs of those that you've given around us. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant that we might do those things for your sake and for your glory.